testing one, two, three. Am I making this pop? Is it suspiciously poppy, popular in here? Yeah, yeah, yep, yeah, that's popular. Wonderful. Yeah. If that sounds good, then we can get cracking. Are you recording? Should we go? Yeah, go. We're recording. It's urology. It's not rocket science. It's not even brain surgery. I can't believe the radiologist missed that. It stood out like dogs. You've got to have a sense of humour when you look at genitals from it. Bend over and assume the position. Bladder, most beautiful organ in the body. Talking urology with Dr. Joseph Iskia and Dr. Nathan Lorenchuk. A podcast series supported by Ipsen. I'm Joseph Iskia. I'm Nathan Lorenchuk. And we're Talking Urology, where we pick the eyes out of the landmark papers that guide our practice every day. Today, we are looking at a paper from the Canary Pass cohort of patients undergoing active surveillance for their prostate cancer. The title of the paper is Outcomes of Active Surveillance for Clinically Localised Prostate Cancer in the Prospective Multi-Institutional Canary Pass Cohort. It was published in the Journal of Urology in February 2016 with first author Lisa Newcomb. We were lucky enough to catch up with senior author Dan Lin, who gave us some insights into this great paper on predicting who will have adverse pathology after a period of active surveillance. I'm uh, Dan Lin. I'm the Chief of Urological Oncology and a Professor of Urology at the University of Washington in Seattle and uh, part of the prostate program there. In the absence of better screening tests, active surveillance is the answer to overtreatment of insignificant prostate cancer detected in the PSA era. But now there has been a shift in thinking with active surveillance, which Dan highlights. For many years, we thought that active surveillance was a strategy to, uh, to avoid overtreatment. Place men on, avoid overtreatment. But I think that strategy has changed now. We've conquered that. We should. We know that that's going to happen. Now the strategy is to identify the virulent disease amongst the background of indolent disease. So now we have to, we, we say, we, we accept that we're going to avoid overtreatment. We're doing that better. Now we have this sea of, of, of men with indolent disease. We've got to find the bad apples in that. Okay, so now, now it's a strategy to avoid undertreatment of those men. So before it was an avoiding overtreatment, now it's really avoiding undertreatment. Australia, Canada and parts of Europe have been avid adopters of active surveillance, but the proportion of men in the United States is still very low, according to Dan. Yeah, I think that the figure used to be somewhere in the 10% range, although recently Matt Cooperberg and others published in JAMA, as well as there was a big series in Michigan looking at the uptake of active surveillance now. And I think that now for low-risk patients, it's now gone from that 10-15% to about nearing 40%. So I think that it's getting there, but for the typical low-risk patient, at most 40%, probably more like 20 to 20, 25%. So if we accept that active surveillance is the best initial treatment for low-risk prostate cancer, how do we spot the bad actors, i.e. which low-risk cancers will not stand the test of time and would be better treated up front? That's right, Joseph. We currently use risk stratification based on PSA, digital rectal examination and Gleason score and are happy to survey men with low risk or very low risk cancers. The future promises uh, involve advances in MRI, genetic analysis of tissue specimens or even liquid biopsies. But active surveillance is currently the best we have and there are a number of cohorts such as the Toronto, Hopkins and UCSF cohorts that point to its long-term safety. Today, we are looking at the Canary Pass cohort from nine high-volume institutions in Canada and the United States. This study looks at 905 men with two primary aims. One, to evaluate outcomes of men on active surveillance. And two, determine significant predictors of progressing to curative treatment. What is really noticeable is that the eligibility criteria were very inclusive. 
certainly more broad than most other published series or criteria. To be eligible for active surveillance, men only had to satisfy two broad criteria. Number one, have biopsy confirmed prostate cancer, and two, have clinically T1 or T2 disease. We intentionally chose a broad criteria, primarily because the major intent of this Canary Pass trial was biomarker research. Yes, so we needed some men that might choose to be in active surveillance that were slightly higher risk as proof or principle for some of the biomarkers that we, cho we were choosing to examine. That was one question. The other one is we wanted to, again, have a very real-world application of active surveillance. Just because they chose active surveillance with slightly higher risk disease, we wanted to maintain them and see how they did for a natural history experiment of, of, of active surveillance. This is an important first point. There was no restriction on Gleason grade, number of cores, or percentage of core involved. It was only what would be considered reasonable for active surveillance, according to the treating clinician. The key outcome was adverse disease reclassification, which meant, firstly, any increase in Gleason grade on repeat biopsy, or secondly, an increase in biopsy tumour volume, which was a binary outcome defined as an increase in the percentage of positive cores from less than 34% to more than 34%. Men with disease reclassification were offered curative treatment. I think that is a really interesting point. There was no protocol trigger for treatment based on PSA changes alone or increases in tumour volume if they didn't cross the 34% threshold. So if they started with 40% cores involved and went to 100% with no change in Gleason grade, then there was no protocol-enforced trigger to treat. We asked Dan why they chose those criteria. So a couple of reasons. One... We do have the NCCN guidelines, and the NCCN guidelines, or the Epstein criteria, let's say, of two or less cores or three or less cores, and, or a percentage of an individual core. We had a lot of debate about whether to include volume, because as you said, the primary driver of tumor biology is grade. Volume might be a surrogate for a bigger tumor volume, maybe a surrogate for or hidden grade. Exactly. However, many men did go on to receive treatment at the discretion of the surgeon based on this increase in tumour volume. For the statistical analysis, the usual variables were looked at. Age, race, Gleason score and tumour volume, PSA, PSA density, clinical T-stage, BMI and a family history of prostate cancer. And cases were stratified by NCCN risk criteria at diagnosis. Although the past cohort in this study uses broad eligibility criteria, most participants, in fact 87%, met the NCCN criteria for very low risk or low risk cancer diagnosis. 94% had a Gleason score of 6 or less. We asked Dan if he thought men with any Gleason pattern 4 disease were suitable for active surveillance. We think so. Um, I think that what you mentioned there is also about the percentage of pattern 4 is amazingly underutilized, under, under, underappreciated. The fact that Somebody can have 95% 3 with 5% 4, be a 3 plus 4, which would qualify for, I think you agree, minority of 4. Or 51% 3 and 49% 4, the 3 plus 4, but it's a lot of 4. Uh, and I think that we're going to get to the bottom of some of that with the molecular analysis that we do. And the cohort wasn't just full of old codgers either. 37% were less than 60 years old, and 89% were less than 70. We asked Dan if he had any concerns about active surveillance in young men. A couple parts to that answer. I think if one looks at one of the predictors of reclassification, 
or progression, it's age. I mean, older age men actually somewhat paradoxically have a higher chance of having higher grade disease later. So in some ways having a younger man, is that protective? Not really. However, the second part of that answer is, I will tell men, I'm sure you tell your patients as well, if they're young and they want active surveillance, particularly if they have more high volume disease, I do tell them that it's probably not a matter of if they'll get treated, it's probably a matter of when. Young men have the most to gain regarding erectile dysfunction and continence if you can delay curative treatment. Exactly. They say oftentimes to me, let me get to retirement or let, give me the next five to seven years without side effects of issues, particularly of, as you said, sexual function side effects. Let's get another five years until I get treated. That's very common, I hear that. That's right, I often hear, Doc, give me five to seven years and I'll hang up the boots, put the cue in the rack, sing with Flacido Domingo, take gold at the Lake Flaccid Olympics, disappointing Miss Daisy. Median follow-up is short at only 28 months. 216 men, or around a quarter, experienced adverse disease reclassification, which was mostly due to increased grade. Of these 216 men, 115 received curative treatment, 83 of these men decided to remain on active surveillance or were considering treatment, and 18 dropped out of the past study without confirmed treatment. We asked Dan why men would choose to stay on active surveillance after upgrading at biopsy. This is not surprising. If one looks at the two or three major series of active surveillance, that being Hopkins or the Toronto series or the UCSF series, it's pretty common that men that have evidence of grade progression decide to stay on active surveillance. I think it's partially because they're having microscopic bits of pattern four disease, you know, three plus four disease, um, that are in one biopsy and then they decide to stay on. What's interesting is if one looks at the men that actually go from a Gleason 6 to a little bit of Gleason 7, and they stay on active surveillance, sometimes the next biopsy, right back to Gleason 6, maybe even low volume. So one can see some heterogeneity there of the biopsy, and I think that's probably why people are staying on, because they're just hanging in there. So I think we get to one of the key questions. Have these men that went on to curative treatment failed active surveillance? No, I don't think so. I think that they've actually had a success of active surveillance because they've maintained themselves off. Half of them have been with no treatment, no side effects, of course, uh, for 10 years. And then they're identified as having either a progression or they themselves decide, okay, I'm done with surveillance. And it hasn't been a failure. They've just been done with surveillance and they move on to treatment. And in the 689 participants who did not experience disease reclassification, 560 remained on active surveillance, whereas 55 received treatment, mostly due to increased tumour volume, but not crossing the 34% threshold. And 74 dropped out of study follow-up. Overall, 170, or around 20% of participants, received treatment. 105 men had surgery, 59 receiving radiation, 3 receiving hormones, and 1 treated with cryotherapy. There's always one. Not surprisingly, given the length of follow-up, there were no distant metastases or prostate cancer deaths. The probability of a patient remaining on active surveillance at 2 years was 88%, whilst at 5 years was 71%, and at 10 years was 50%. On multivariate Cox proportional hazards modelling, three variables were significantly associated with grade reclassification. One, percentage of cores containing cancer at diagnosis. Two, BMI. And three, PSA density. Why percentage of cores? I think that it, most of us think that it is a bit of a surrogate for higher volume disease, and higher volume disease has been shown to have higher grade disease ultimately. If one looks in the radical prostatectomy, certainly, 
uh, as a predictor of upgrading in radical prostatectomy. And why was BMI a predictor of poor outcome? I think that the, if you ask the tumor biologists, the ones that are interested in insulin growth factor and so forth, they, or inflammation, they say that body mass index or obesity is, a, again, a surrogate for inflammation, for mutagenesis, for other things that will affect tumor biology. Um, if you ask uh, the other, there, there's a whole other school of the endocrine school, so body mass index changing the hormonal milieu within the prostate. I don't know which is true, but all I know is that we are one of the first ones to show that BMI was associated with reclassification. PSA density is something we don't often calculate or hear about. Dan thinks we are missing an important point. I think that it's not used enough at all. It's under-recognized. Uh, I think it's under-reported. I also think that many don't even calculate the PSA density. And I think there's, a, there's an issue with that. If one looks at almost every paper for active surveillance, either single institution or multi-institution, if you look at that, PSA density really rises to the top. And now we get to the crux of the matter. How many men had bad pathology on their radical prostatectomy specimen? Mm. Well, of the 105 men, 35 had adverse pathological features at surgery, including primary Gleason pattern 4 or 5, extra prostatic extension, seminal vesicle invasion, or lymph node metastasis. How did the guy on cryo go? Joseph, I could guess, but I won't. Importantly, there was no significant relationship between risk classification at diagnosis and adverse pathology at surgery. The core of the matter is, at the beginning of their diagnosis, where they're very low risk or low risk, later on, if they had radical prostatectomy, there was no, they also still had about a 30, 35% chance of having adverse pathology. That's pretty scary, actually, right? So even if they were one core, very low risk, low PSA density, the very low risk by NCCN category, they still had the same chance of having uh, an adverse pathology. That really argues for biomarker work. That argues for better work in understanding the genomics and genetics and molecular biology that surrounds this disease. So what can we take away from all of this? I think the key messages are that active surveillance is an effective strategy to mitigate overtreatment by delaying or avoiding primary therapy. Multiple series have demonstrated no or very low prostate cancer-specific mortality. Yes, I can see. But the real problem is that we still don't know who is safe to survey and what are the best triggers to avoid the dreaded missed opportunity to cure. Who are we doing a disservice to? We have, um, within our cohort, many men that have been treated, of course, and at the time of their radical prostatectomy, if we look at their pathology, and we've had a couple that were node positive. So the question that goes through my mind, and all of our minds, of course, is did we miss the window of curability? because we know that node-positive disease is, by and large, incurable. Uh, and so are these men that we could have operated on much sooner. So I think that those men, men that have poor pathology either by primary pattern 4 disease or, or worse, or extra prostatic disease, uh, I think that those seminal vessel invasion, node-positive disease, those are the men that could we, could we have identified them earlier? Did we do them a disservice by following them for sometimes two, three, four years until they were treated? Most, if not all, of these disease reclassifications are unlikely to be due to actual disease evolution, most often due to undersampling of the prostate during biopsy. I think one of the hardest things to reconcile is the poorer outcomes associated with increases in tumour volume. But just say it's all Gleason 6 cancer, which is not lethal. Is it just a surrogate marker of hidden higher grade? Perhaps we need better imaging to help detect the significant cancers. We asked Dan if he thought one day MRI would replace tumour volume as a predictor. I do. 
I think that grade will start to dominate. If, if MRI still proves that the positive predictive value for high grade for pattern 4 disease, if it really shows that the PPV is high and then we're starting to hit lesions with minimal numbers of course, but they're high grade, then, then certainly it's going to change the game quite a bit. Certainly there are several limitations of this study, mainly the short follow-up where evaluation of the impact of active surveillance on the more established disease-specific endpoints, such as prostate cancer, metastasis or mortality, is not possible. And this was recently brought up when Laurie Klotz reanalyzed his series from Toronto, where those with Gleason Pattern 4 were four times as likely to have metastatic disease once followed for a long period of time. Look at Klotz's series or... Hopkins series, they're really following them for 10 or 15 years, and we're pretty early in our study. I think that, again, we're about biomarkers and probably early progression. So I think that, as you know, the risk of mortality from low-risk prostate cancer is amazingly low. It should be low. It was 1.5% in the, the Toronto series and 0.15% in the Hopkins series. Um, and they are, again, after 10 or 15 years of follow-up. Follow so we're relatively young. I think we'll get there eventually. Um, it's just going to take some time. One of the criticisms of active surveillance concerns the adverse outcomes after delayed curative treatment. However, there is no guarantee that upfront treatment would have saved all these men from non-organ confined disease or further progression. There are still men with adverse disease in the immediate treatment arms of the PIVOT study and the Swedish prostatectomy trial. Not many men had node positive disease. I think the T3 rate is in that kind of 20% range, I, I, I hear you on that. Um, but not many node positive. So I, I do, I agree with that to a certain extent. If you look at, take a theoretical 100 men, they go on active surveillance, um, and then down the line you're going to treat you know, 30 or 40 of them and, and half of those, so now we're down to 15 or 20 have issues. Whereas you took the same 100 men and just did it right up front, you're right, there would be 15 or 20 that might have some issues. So let's look at the take-home messages. Even with very broad inclusion criteria, the probability of patients remaining on active surveillance at 5 and 10 years after diagnosis is 71% and 50% respectively. With a median follow-up of 28 months, around 6% of men who undergo curative treatment will have adverse pathological features such as primary Gleason pattern 4 or 5, extra prostatic extension, seminal vesicle invasion or lymph node metastasis. And finally, predictors of grade reclassification while on active surveillance are 1 percentage of cores containing cancer at diagnosis, two, BMI, and three, PSA density. I think you've summed that up nicely, Joseph, and I think we all agree active surveillance is here to stay. It's just what form it will take, and studies such as uh, this cohort presented by Dan Lin really are educative and can help shape the future of active surveillance for men with prostate cancer. Thank you all for listening. I hope you found this interesting, and if you have any questions, comments, or feedback, or want the full list of euphemisms for impotence, please get in touch with us at talkingurology at gmail.com. Of course, negative feedback can be sent to Sepp Blatter, care of FIFA past presidents, who will transcribe it to the back of $100 non-consecutive bills and forward it to us. This has been Talking Urology with Dr. Joseph Iskia and Dr. Nathan Lorenchuk, a podcast series supported by Ipsen. 